0: dying to live. I'm reading out of Romans chapter 6 today. During a court session, an attorney will often rise to his feet and say, Your Honor, I object. Well, some of the Roman Christians must have felt like objecting as they heard Paul's letter being read, and Paul seemed to anticipate their thinking. In Romans 6, verses 6-8, through Paul defended his doctrine of justification by faith. He anticipated three objections. Number one, if God's grace abounds when we sin, then let's continue sinning so we might experience more grace. And number two, if we are no longer under the law, then we are free to live as we please number three you have made god's law sinful these objections prove that the readers did not understand neither law nor grace they were going to extremes in legalism on the one hand and license on the other so as paul defended justification he also explained sanctification he told how we can live lives of victory liberty and security He explained our relationship to the flesh, the law, and the Holy Spirit. In Romans 6, Paul gave three instructions for attaining glory, or excuse me, attaining victory over sin. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, the repetition of the word no in Romans 6, verses 1, 6, and 9 indicates that Paul wanted us to understand a basic doctrine. Christian living depends on Christian hearing. Duty is always founded on doctrine. If Satan can keep a Christian ignorant, he can keep him impotent. The basic truth Paul was teaching is the believer's identification with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection just as we are identified with Adam in sin and condemnation so we are now identified with Christ in righteousness and in justification at Romans chapter 5 verse 12 Paul made a transition from discussing sins in the plural to discussing sin in the singular from the actions to the principle, from the fruit to the root. Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but he also died unto sin. And we died with him. In other words, justification by faith is not simply a legal matter between me and God. It is a living relationship. It is a justification which brings life. Romans 5 verse 18 I am in Christ and identified with Him. Therefore, whatever happened to Christ has happened to me. So when He died, I died. When He rose, I rose in Him. I am now seated with Him in the heavenlies. And because of this living union with Christ, the believer has a totally new relationship to sin. He is dead to sin. That is the new relationship. Paul's illustration is baptism in verses 2 through 5. The Greek word has two basic meanings. One, a literal meaning, to dip or to immerse. And two, a figurative meaning, to be identified with an example of the latter would be 1 Corinthians 10 and 2 where it says, And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The nation of Israel was identified with Moses as their leader when they crossed the Red Sea. It appears that Paul had both the literal and the figurative in mind in this paragraph. He used the reader's experience of water baptism to remind them of their identification with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be baptized into Jesus Christ. Romans 6.3 is the same as for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12. There is a difference between water baptism and baptism of the Spirit. See John 1 verse 33. When a sinner trusts Christ, he is immediately born into the family of God and he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. A good illustration of this is the household of Cornelius. When they heard Peter preach, Acts 10... Verses 34 through 48. When these people believed on Christ, they immediately received the Holy Spirit. After that, they were baptized. Peter's words, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, gave to them the promise that they needed. They believed and they were saved. Historians agree that the mode of baptism in the early church was immersion. The believer was buried in the water and brought up again as a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism by immersion, which is the illustration Paul is using in Romans 6, pictures the believer's identification with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It is an outward symbol of an inward experience. Paul is not saying that their immersion in water put them into Jesus Christ. He is not saying that. For that was accomplished by the Holy Spirit when they believed. The immersion was a picture of what the Spirit of God did. The Holy Spirit identified them with Christ in his death in his burial and resurrection this means that the believer has a new relationship to sin he is dead to sin i am crucified with christ galatians two twenty. look at it this way if a drunk man dies he can no longer be tempted by alcohol because his body is dead to all physical senses, he cannot see the alcohol. He can't smell it. He can't taste it. And he can't. Uh, he he would not desire it. So in Jesus Christ, we have died to sin, so that we no longer want to quote continue in sin. But we're not only dead to sin; we are also alive unto Christ or alive in Christ. We have been raised from the dead and now walk in the power of his resurrection. We walk in newness of life because we share his life. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Galatians 2 verse 20. This tremendous spiritual truth is illustrated in the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus arrives at Bethany and Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. So there was no question about his death. By the power of his word, Lazarus come forth. Jesus raised his friend from the dead. But when Lazarus appeared at the door of the tomb, what was he wearing? He was wrapped in grave clothes. So Jesus commanded, loose him and let him go. He had been raised to walk in, quote, in newness of life. In John 12, Lazarus was seated with Christ at the table in fellowship with him. Dead raised from the dead, set free to walk in newness of life, seated with Christ. All of these facts illustrate the spiritual truth of our identification with Christ as given in Ephesians chapter 2. Too many Christians are betweeners. They live between Egypt and Canaan, saved but never satisfied, or they live between Good Friday and Easter, believing in the cross but not entering into the power and glory of the resurrection. Romans chapter 6 verse 5 indicates that our union with Christ assures our future resurrection should we die. But Romans 6 4 teaches that we share His resurrection power today. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Colossians chapter 3. It's clear then that the believer cannot deliberately live in sin since he has a new relationship to sin because of his identification with Christ Jesus. The believer has died to the old life, he has been raised to enjoy a new life. The believer does not want to go back into sin. Any more than Lazarus wanted to go back into the tomb dressed again in his grave clothes. In verses 6 through 10, sin is a terrible master and it finds a willing servant in a human body. Hear me folks, it finds a living servant in a human body. The body is not sinful. The body is neutral. It can be controlled either by sin or by God. But man's fallen nature, which is not changed at conversion, gives him a beachhead from which it can attack and then control. Paul expressed the problem. He said, For I know that in me, or that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing for to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good i find not a tremendous fact is introduced here the old man or the old ego or self was crucified with christ so that the body need not be controlled by sin The word destroyed in Romans 6 does not mean annihilated. It means rendered inactive or made of no effect. The same Greek word is translated loosed in Romans chapter 7. If a woman's husband dies, she is loosed from the law of her husband and is free to marry again. There is a change in relationship. The law is still there. But it has no authority over the woman because her husband died. Sin wants to be our master. It finds a foothold in our old nature. And through the old nature seeks to control the members of the body. But in Jesus Christ we died to sin. And the old nature was crucified so that the old life is rendered inoperative. Paul wasn't describing an experience. He was stating a fact. The practical experience was to come later. It is a fact of history that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It is also a fact of history that the believer died with him. He that is dead the Bible says, is freed from sin. Not free to sin, as Paul's accusers falsely stated, but freed from sin. Sin and death have no dominion over Christ. We are in Christ. Therefore, sin and death have no dominion over us. Jesus Christ not only died for for sin but he also died unto sin that is he not only paid the penalty for sin but he broke the power of sin and this idea of dominion takes us back to romans 5 where paul dealt with the reigns of sin death and grace and through christ we quote reign in life Romans 5, 17, so that sin no longer controls our lives. The big question now is, I believe the facts of history, but how do I make this work in daily, in my daily experience? And this leads to Paul's second instruction in chapter 6. In in some parts of the United States, he's talking about reckoning. In some parts of the United States, to reckon means to think or to guess. I reckon is also the equivalent of I suppose. But none of those popular meanings can apply to this verse. The word reckon is is a translation of a Greek word that is used 40 times one times in the new testament 19 times in romans alone it appears in romans 4 where it is translated as count reckon impute it means to take into account to calculate to estimate the word impute to put one to put to one's account is perhaps the best translation To reckon means to put to one's account. It simply means to believe that what God says in his word is really true in your life. Paul didn't really tell his readers to feel as though they were dead to sin or even to understand it fully, but to act on God's word and claim it for themselves. Reckoning is a matter of faith. That issues an action. It's like endorsing a check. If we really believe that the money is in the checking account. We will sign our name and collect the money. Reckoning is not claiming a promise. But acting. But acting on a fact. God does not command us to believe. Excuse me. God does not command us to become. To become dead to sin he tells us that we are dead to sin and alive unto God. And then he commands us to act on it. Even if we do not act on it, the facts are still true. God's word is still true. Paul's first instruction, quote, no, centered in the mind. And his second instruction, reckon, focuses on the heart the third instruction touches the will in chapter 6 verses 12 through 23 the word yield is found five times in this section and means to place at one's disposal to present to offer as a sacrifice According to Romans 12 and verse 1, the believer's body should be presented to the Lord as a living sacrifice for His glory. The Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices. The Lord may ask some of us to die for Him, but He asks all of us to live for Him. How we are to yield in verses 12 and 13 This is actually an act of the will based on the knowledge that we have of what Christ has done for us. It is an intelligent act. Not the impulsive decision of of the moment uh, based on some emotional stirring. It is important to notice the tenses of the verbs in these verses. A literal translation is quote, do not Constantly allow sin to reign in your mortal body so that you are constantly obeying its lusts. Neither constantly yield your members of your body as weapons or tools of unrighteousness to sin. But once and for all yield yourselves to God. That once and for all surrender is described in Romans 12, verse 1. There must be in the believer's life that final and complete surrender of the body to Jesus Christ. This does not mean there will be no further steps of surrender because there will be. The longer we walk with Christ, the deeper the fellowship must become. But there can be no subsequent steps without that first step. A once and for all yielding to the Lord. To be sure we daily surrender afresh to Him. But even that is based on a final and complete Surrender. You know, someone might ask, why does the Lord want your body? To begin with, the, the believer's body is God's temple. He wants to use it for His glory. See 1 Corinthians 6 and Philippians chapter 1. But Paul wrote that the body is also God's tool and it's God's weapon. Romans six thirteen. God wants to use the members of the body as tools. For building his kingdom. And weapons for fighting his enemies. The Bible tells of people who permitted God to take and use their bodies for the fulfilling of his purposes. God used the rod of Moses, say. His hand and conquered Egypt. He used the sling that was in David's hand to defeat the Philistines. He used the mouths and tongues of the prophets. And then Paul's dedicated feet, uh, his dedicated feet, literal feet, carried him from city to city as he proclaimed the gospel of good news. The apostle John's eyes saw the visions of the future, and his ears heard God's message, and his, his fingers wrote it all down in a book that we can read today. But you can also read in the Bible accounts of the members of the body being used for sinful purposes as well. Just like David and his, his eyes looked on his his neighbor's wife and his mind plotted a wicked scheme. His hand signed a cowardly order for the woman's husband to be killed. And then as you read Psalms 51, you see that his whole body was affected by this sin his eyes his mind his ears check out psalms 51 his heart his lips and his mouth everything was affected by a sin no wonder he prayed for a thorough cleansing there are three words that summarize the reasons for our yielding that would be favor freedom and fruit In verse 14 and 15, favor, it is because of God's grace that we yield ourselves to him. It is even not of ourselves, friends. It is of his grace we yield ourselves to him. Paul has proved that we are not saved by the law and that we do not live under the law. The fact that we are saved by grace does not give us an excuse to sin, but it does give us a reason to obey. Sin and law go together. First Corinthians, it says the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Chapter 15, verse 56. Since we are not under the law, but under grace, sin is robbed of its strength. In regard to freedom in verses 16 through 20, the illustration of the master and servant is obvious. Whatever you yield to becomes your master. Before you were saved, you were the slave of sin. Now that you belong to Christ, you are freed from that old slavery and made the servant of Christ. Romans chapter six verse nineteen suggests that the Christian ought to be as enthusiastic in yielding to the Lord as he was in yielding to sin. The unsaved person is free, free from righteousness, free from righteousness. Romans six twenty. But his bondage to sin leads him deeper into slavery. So that it becomes harder and harder to do what is right. We're talking about the unsaved person here. The prodigal son is an example of this. As we look at Luke chapter 15. When he was at home he decided he wanted his freedom. So he left home to find himself and to enjoy himself. But his rebellion only led him deeper into slavery he was the slave of wrong desires and then the slave of wrong deeds and finally he became a literal slave when he took care of the pigs he wanted to find himself but you know what he lost himself what he thought was freedom turned out to be the worst kind of slavery it was only when he returned from and he yielded to his father that he found true freedom. And then in regard to fruit, verses 21 through 23, if you serve a master, you can expect to receive wages. Sin pays wages. Death, that is the wage of sin. God also pays wages. Holiness and everlasting life. In the old life, we produced fruit that made us ashamed. In the new life in Christ, we produce fruit that glorifies God and brings joy to our lives. We usually apply Romans 6, verse 23 to the lost, and certainly it does apply. But it also has a warning for the saved as well. After all, it was written to Christians there is a sin unto death. It says this in 1 John five seventeen, and For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Samson, for example, would not yield himself to God, but preferred to yield to the lust of the flesh. And the result was death. See Judges 16. If the believer refuses to surrender his body to the Lord, but uses its members for sinful purposes, then he is in danger of being disciplined by the Father, and this could mean death. See Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, and note the end verse, um, end of verse 9 in particular. These three instructions need to be heeded each each day that we live. Know that you have been crucified with Christ and are dead to sin. Reckon this fact to be true in your own life. Yield your body to the Lord to be used for His glory. Now that you know these truths, reckon them to be true in your life. And then yield yourself to God. Amen.